Well, good morning. I'm so glad you could be here again this morning with me, the second of four um, about the book of Revelation. This morning, our title is Revelation to Whom? Dogs, Martyrs, the Seven Churches, and Us. So hopefully we'll have an idea um, how this relates to us and who it was originally written to as well by the end of today. Um, But as we begin, let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word written and your word made flesh. And we thank you, Lord, for this this um, book of the Bible that is so mysterious and so bright and so colorful and so full of your glory. And we ask, Lord, indeed, that your glory would shine through. We ask, Lord, too, that you would speak to each one of us where we are 2000 years later, even as we read this book that was um, so helpful for that early church. Um, Would you make it also helpful for our lives today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we talked last week about how, we started out talking about how Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. If you remember, I used the example of a Rubik's Cube. Often people will approach Revelation as though it's a cipher that must be solved just like the Rubik's Cube that existed at my grandmother's house when I was a child, and I never was able to solve it. I didn't even like, I I wanted to win, but I wasn't very good at it. And so I wanted to take the stickers off and cheat and put them all around on the actual face so that all the colors would match instead of actually turning the cube to be able to do it. And when people treat Revelation like a puzzle book, essentially they're doing that. They're trying to manipulate the images so that they fit just so into their schema. And that's not how the book of Revelation is meant to be approached. It is a picture book, a composite um, word picture book. We're going to talk about word pictures in just a minute. We talked about the genre. As scripture, it is simultaneously prophetic scripture, apocalyptic scripture, and apostolic. Meaning that um, apostolic, let's start with that one, the easiest one. It's a letter written to churches then and effective for the church today throughout all time and space. It's apocalyptic in that it's in the genre of these Jewish apocalypses. You see some of them, um, Daniel is partly apocalyptic. And then um, in the time between the Old and New Testaments, other Jewish writers wrote apocalyptic um, books that were essentially meant to encourage people on earth by giving them a vision, by revealing to them what was going on in heaven by assuring those in the midst of trial and persecution that God really did have a plan for them, um, even though it might not feel like it. And then prophetic because, um, and we think of this normally as being an apocalyptic aspect, it's really a prophetic aspect all throughout the Old Testament. The prophetic books look forward um, not just to interpret what does God say about what's going on right now, but what does God say will happen in the future. And um, certainly Revelation looks towards the end of human history. And the punchline, the bottom line, is the Lamb of God wins. Um, There is victory for the Lamb and for those who are in the Lamb, in Christ. So Revelation also, um, as apocalyptic, uh, Scripture provides divine insight into earthly events, lifting the veil, looking backstage to see what's going on. And essentially, we talked last week about the the eternal reality, that God is on his throne. God is Lord, no matter what happens on earth. This is good news for us today, as much as it was good news for them 2,000 years ago, when it seems like everything's falling apart. When you read the news, watch the news, or when you think what will happen in 
six months or nine months or a year from now or five years from now? Or what will my children's life be like when they're adults? What will the world be like then? When we're prone to worry, we need to remember God is Lord. He is on his throne. He is actually in control of everything that happens on earth. And so Revelation, as I already mentioned, reveals the end of human history. The Lamb will return victorious over all human kingdoms. And I talked, remember, about interpreting Revelation, um, not in terms of it being a chronology of events depicted, but rather um, the way my sister paints her paintings, a composite picture. And she actually, I was talking to her again this week, she said, I don't think everybody paints the way I paint, but I'm too lazy to wash my brushes in between using colors. So she uses one color and she'll do all of that one color in the painting. And then she'll wash her brushes and go back and do all of another color in her painting. And she'll go back. And this is what Revelation does throughout chapter 6 through 19, which is what we're going to look at next week. That um, there the Lord through John paints a picture of all of human history using one shade from one perspective or one device, one picture device. Then he goes back and paints the picture again, um, filling in other colors and other aspects of what will happen. And then he'll go back again and again and again. Okay. The other thing I didn't say last week, and that is that um, in being a picture book, Revelation uses word pictures. And it's hard for us to understand some of the word pictures that are used in Revelation, but these are actually, this is a word picture that we might be more familiar with. Um, What is the story that's being told by this picture of a battered elephant and a battered donkey with American flag trunks in boxing gloves. What does that picture say to us today? We could probably all interpret it. Yeah, I'm really tired of politics, especially right now, right? It talks about the two parties going at it, right? And really duking it out uh, for, for leadership, for, for control, for being top dog. And they're both pretty battered. It's hard to tell which one will win. That's a word picture that speaks to us. We don't take it literally, right? We know that the elephant represents uh, the Republicans and that the donkey represents the Democrats. And and that's something important to remember, that there are um, standard symbols that those in the first century knew about when they were hearing these word pictures in Revelation that would make sense to them. And so um, God, through John, is speaking their language. Okay, now for today, looking first today, we're going to ask who are the dogs in Revelation. They're only mentioned once, but the idea behind this um, this aspect of who dogs might be um, is, is something that might help us when we read those first letters in chapters 2 and 3, those individual portions of the letter that are directed towards each one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Well, dogs throughout the Old Testament are actually seen as unclean animals. Sorry to show you that picture, but um, they're seen as ravenous scavengers of dead, rotten, unclean meat. My first mission trip ever was to India in 2004, and I was so uh, such a newbie. You know, we got off the plane, we drove all night in a dusty, bouncy car, and I was car sick. We sleep maybe five hours, and then we get up and we're going to visit a ministry in downtown Mumbai or um, Bombay. 
Oh, actually, no, this was in Pune, um, which is eight hours from Bombay. We flew into Bombay. And there were these dogs everywhere, and they looked so cute. And I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I thought, I want to go pet one of these dogs. And they, the Indians were like, don't touch the dog. <laughs> they kind of came after me. That's not a pet. Um, there were these packs of wild dogs that would scavenge, um, trash, eat any kind of dead meat all around the city. And this is usually what happens anywhere outside of the Western world. If you ever visit anywhere outside of the Western world, dogs are not pets. Um, and in the Old Testament, this natural way dogs kind of will scavenge anything. Even our labs and our family will eat just about anything. I remember a 12-hour trip with a Labrador retriever that had eaten lobster shells and corn cobs. And we had to sit in a car with her for 12 hours. Thankfully, she did not need medical intervention. But she was a ravenous scavenger. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this literal association with dogs. And then it becomes a spiritual association, a figurative association already with evil doing. By Jesus' day and age, the term had come to be an insult said of pious Jews about pagan Gentiles. And we hear this in Matthew 15 when a Canaanite Gentile woman comes seeking healing for her daughter from Jesus. And to test her, do you remember what Jesus responds? He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's using this technical term, this slur, essentially, to test her. How much does she want it? How great is her faith? Does she believe in the mercy of God? And she does. And he commends her for it. And he heals her daughter from afar. Um, We hear also in um, Philippians chapter 3, Paul then also uses the term figuratively. But he has swapped the meaning. He uses the term instead of um, using the term technically as a slur of pagan Gentiles. He has swapped the term. In Philippians 3, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's writing in Philippians 3 to warn those new Gentile Christians of the Jewish so-called Christians who would try to get them to be circumcised in order to be received as part of the people of God. And so here, ironically, Paul has swapped the term. Ironically, here, dogs are not Gentiles, but he's using this term of Jews. Paul is reversing their status, saying that those Gentiles who live by faith in Christ are truly the people of God. And those who live by confidence in their circumcised flesh um, are pagans, in fact, who live by their works. And so he uses that term, dogs of them. And so in Revelation, we find the term dogs just once in um, Revelation 22, verses, um, verse 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to enter the tr- right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is the New Jerusalem at the end. Outside the city are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
This is that part of Revelation 22 that we don't ever want to read. We'd like to stop right at verse 14 and not talk about what's outside of the city of the New Jerusalem. But the idea here is that throughout Revelation, there's this juxtaposition of truth and falsehood. What is true and how do these Christians in the midst of so much stress, how do they discern what is true? How do they follow what is true? And in the midst of their cultural context, there was so much danger that they would compromise with the world around them, that they would look exactly like um, the pagan Gentiles, that those Jewish, or excuse me, Gentile Christians would look exactly the same as the pagan Gentiles around them. And so Paul, or excuse me, John throughout, and God through John, is calling them to persevere in their identity as new people in Christ. He is also calling them to repent of any kind of false work and specifically that falsehood that would involve idolatry. And along with idolatry and participating in pagan idolatry came also um, sexual immorality and also um, eating food sacrificed to idols. So as we're going to read those first two chapters, or chapters two and three of Revelation, we'll see that that's an important theme, this idea of idolatry, of um, freedom from compromise. So I've put that as our first to whom. Our second to whom is to, um, to witnesses. Okay. So who are the witnesses um, throughout the New Testament? Um, throughout the Old and New Testaments, the word is used as we would use it, of witnesses to a crime or to an oath, a witness in court, or a witness that signs on a marriage license, or a witness that signs a will. And later on, this term in the New Testament comes to be used of those who bear witness to the truth about Jesus Christ. John, in his gospel, uses the word bear witness, testimony, and witness multiple times along with testify. And their root word is all the same, martureo. And I'll um, break that down for us in a little bit because that word martureo or martyr has um, connotations for us today. So if those who bear witness um, are those who bear witnesses to the truth about Jesus Christ, we see that even here in Luke. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer This is Jesus speaking about himself just before he ascends into heaven. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. He is saying to the apostles right there. And what then? What's the content of the testimony? What is it to which they bear witness? The testimony is um, from this from this passage that we read this morning. Someone else who can see it want to read it for us? Anyone? Can you see it? I tried to make it in dark letters today instead of white letters. I'll read it. Oh, thank you. Um, so there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So the testimony can be used interchangeably. That word testimony, we could use it interchangeably with the gospel all throughout the New Testament. That kernel of truth, that one thing that must be proclaimed, that one thing about Jesus Christ that must be borne witness to, that fact of his um, ransoming uh, all of all those who put their trust in him 
um, through his death and through his resurrection. This idea of bearing witness to Christ, um, bearing witness to the testimony of the gospel is throughout the New Testament, but it starts to change in the first century. As the first century goes on, it starts to change so that it also involves this idea of suffering. And we hear this in Paul's letters here in first, uh, let's see, first Timothy 1.8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul is one who suffered because of the testimony that he bore. We see then when we get to Revelation that this idea of bearing witness to Christ and to what God does in him is combined also with suffering. Here in Revelation 1.5, um, this is the revelation um, from God through Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth, of the kings on earth. And we hear it also, the words of the Amen, that's Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Throughout Revelation, we'll see it again. Further in Revelation, well, John also is one who bears witness, uh, one who is a faithful witness to the testimony of Jesus, and that's part of the reason why he's exiled on Patmos. We hear then, and we'll read this also in chapter 2, of one member of one of the churches, I think this is Smyrna, where there was someone who died because he bore witness to Jesus Christ. He was killed among them. He was persecuted to death. Um, and then in Revelation 6-9, does someone want to read that one who can see it? This one right here? We're going to read this one next week. Yeah. Um, Great. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain by the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Thank you. See the the increasing combination of suffering and bearing witness to the testimony of Christ. And then someone else want to read chapter 12, verse 11? They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Okay. So the Greek word, the Greek verb for bearing witness is related to the noun. It's related to, um, there's the noun of the person who bears witness. There's the noun of the testimony. And then there's the verb bearing witness or testifying. And that word is the word that came to be come uh, martyr in English. Martyr is based on the same root word as this word to bear witness in the Greek. And this transition to martyr, to the meaning that we now associate um, with those who die, specifically because of their faith in Christ, that association came to, came to be in the second and third centuries. As so many Christians who bore witness to Christ were killed because of their faith in him, were persecuted to the point of death. And here I have a picture of Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, who's martyred because of the testimony that he bears about Jesus. This We might not feel like, oh, I'm going to suffer a lot um, if I bear witness to Jesus Christ. In the midst of a very Christian society, especially I'm thinking not so much of the United States, but I'm thinking here in the southeast, it's cool to be a Christian. It's okay to be a Christian. You, we receive a lot of positive social benefits from it. And we're, there might be social circles where it's very uncool, and we're not um, praised for it, but your mom will always be happy if you're a Christian, right? So, so there's this 
um, there's this sense in which being a Christian here is totally acceptable. But there are other parts of the world where it's not okay to be a Christian. And I, even just putting up this image of the 21 Egyptians who were beheaded shows us that today um, there are many, many martyrs for Christ. There are many who are bearing witness with their lives to the truth about Jesus. Do you know there are more martyrs in the last 100 years than there were in all of the 2,000 years of Christian or 1,900 years of Christian history before it? Um, it's amazing. Um, part of it's there's just there are more Christians now than there ever were before, but there are parts of the world where the church. And when you think about the churches being unified across denominations, across across ethnic boundaries, there are places where there are some churches where uh, individuals are having to give their lives, suffering greatly because of the gospel. So they are bearing witness. And this um, in Revelation in chapters two and three, we're going to see there are a lot of um, there are a few different churches that the Lord says to them, you will suffer in the midst of your suffering. Persevere. And so what we're going to see is in these seven churches, there are two different messages, two underlying messages. Sometimes they're combined, but sometimes it's either one or the other. The messages very often are repent and or persevere. Repent of compromise with the world, of um, practicing things that are against your faith, but that help your life be easier in society. Repent of those syncretistic practices, repent of lukewarmness, repent of half-heartedness. But then there's also this encouragement to persevere for those who are under dire distress, those who are threatened, whose lives are threatened because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So, I'll take a breath there. Anybody have any questions about that first little part, dogs and witnesses? I partly chose it just to be provocative. Um, so the dogs part especially but because there is this idea of um, compromise with the world in these seven churches okay well it is um, specifically a letter remember this is a letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor and if you can see on my map there are so many more churches besides these seven in Asia Minor so why is John writing just these seven while well, he would have been exiled here on Patmos. And what we think is that um, the order in which these little mini parts of the letter are addressed would be the order in which someone carrying the letter would travel from Patmos up then onto the, from, the, from, the, um, from the sea up onto the coast at Ephesus, then on to Smyrna, and then to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Is that cool? I think that's cool. Um, so the letter really was passed around to these different churches. So on one level, the letter is written to these seven that really existed. And yet, in a sense, we'll see that the number seven throughout Revelation is the number that is symbolic. It's the number of perfection, the number of completion. This is a letter that is for all the churches, all the churches then and all the churches now and all the churches throughout human history. This is a letter that is for us today. And so as we read these different parts of the letters, there will be different things that might stick out to us that speak to us in our own situation. 
Within the letters, the themes of victory, suffering, and compromise are dominant. And victory um, can be gained through Christ over both suffering and compromise. Suffering through persevering, and then also um, victory through um, through repenting of compromise. So through persevering suffering in the midst of suffering and through repenting of any kind of compromise. And just to say something about those two different things, suffering was the kind of thing that they would experience. They would experience persecution from two different sides, from those Jewish synagogues that saw them as heretics of the Jewish faith. And we saw throughout, um, throughout the end of the uh, first century, synagogues were closing their doors to Jewish Christians saying, that's something else. <laughs> we don't think you're actually good Jews. And so you're not allowed to worship with us. And then on the other side, Christians were receiving persecution from Gentiles and from Rome itself because they were seen as being atheists. Isn't that funny? Here are these pagans who worshipped everything just to cover all their bases. They worshipped all the gods that they could find just because, and then they had favorites, but they worshipped all the ones they could find. They didn't like these Christians who would only worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They thought, what's, what's the matter with you? Just burn a little incense to the emperor. Especially that idea of emperor worship was seen as being really bad or that they wouldn't do it. I remember when I was um, in Pittsburgh, living in Pittsburgh in seminary, and um, the Pittsburgh Steelers are the home team, of course. And so if you're going to go over to anyone's house and the Steelers game is on, you're not supposed to do anything else. This is what I discovered by accident. You're supposed to sit there and watch the TV and eat some food, but only during halftime. Like, you cannot get up, because if you get up, the team might lose, and then it would be your fault that you got up. And, you know, so, I didn't know this. So, I mean, obviously. (laughs) I know! (laughs) Exactly. But isn't it funny how we get superstitious like that? So, I would, um, because I can't sit in front of anything for three hours, because I just don't... I just gotta keep moving. I would bring my, I would bring my knitting to these football parties. <laughs> Thank you. Can you see? I'd be sitting there knitting, having fun, sort of watching the game, but also like I had to. That was how I could watch the game was if I was doing something with my hands. And if they started to lose, they would be like, "You have to get out of here." <laughs> yeah, we we love you. Go away. <laughs> get into the other room. This idea that um, the the whole empire would fall into ruin if not every citizen worshiped the emperor, was very similar to the superstition about football or sports teams that we have. And so those first century pagans couldn't fathom, look, just put down the knitting. All you have to do is burn a little incense to the emperor, and then we're going to cover all of our behinds. We're all going to have good crops. We won't get invaded by anybody. It'll be a-okay. So they couldn't understand, and they began to persecute the Christians who wouldn't um, worship the emperor. So there is that call to persevere in the midst of suffering. There's also this call to resist the temptation to compromise with the world around them by participating in pagan idolatry. Many of these tradespeople, middle class or upper middle class tradespeople who were trying to make a good living for their families, would participate in these guilds, kind of like the Masons. But there were all of these pagan guilds that each would worship you know, one god or goddess And in order to be a part of it, in order to get ahead in your trade and to actually receive business, you had to worship that particular god or goddess associated with um, trade. 
And so in that kind of worship, that would involve eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and or sexual immorality. So it was economic suicide to reject the minimum pagan requirements for guild membership, as one commentator says. So these Christians, it's kind of, it's understandable on one level. They were just trying to make a living for themselves. And they truly worshipped God also and Jesus Christ. But there were these temptations to worship others. Okay. So in the midst of this, we see the seven churches. If you notice, the call um, is repent, persevere, repent, repent and persevere, repent, persevere, repent. Um, This is intentional. There is a structure here. Um, If we were to call it, this is what my dad says, they're the good, the bad, and the ugly. The the only two that don't receive any reproach are um, number two and number six. So Smyrna and Philadelphia are so weak. They're so not compromised. They're just being persecuted to death. And so um, the Lord's message to them is hang in there. Um, even as his message to the others is repent and hang in there. Okay. Um, within that, you see in each one of these letters that there's an internal structure. There's a greeting accompanied by a title of the risen Christ, usually taken from chapter 1. And Jesus begins by saying to them, I know, and then fill in the blank, something about them. I know what's going on in your life, basically. I see you. I see your situation. I see what you have to deal with. I see the temptations you face. I see the persecution that's around the corner. It's very intimate. It's very compassionate. Um, And this is something that's for us as well. Um, Even as we read these I knows, remember, it's as though Christ is saying them directly to us. I know what you have to go through every day. And then, like any good criticism, um, he begins with an affirmation, usually. There are only a couple where he doesn't affirm, and that's where he's just really quick to fix something. He, uh, this affirmation, I know how hard it is. I know it's tough. And then a criticism and a warning. And then at the end, there's this same thread, this common exhortation in all seven letters. And finally, a promise for those who conquer in Christ, for those who are victorious in Christ, um, there's something special awaiting them on the other side, on the other side of this life. So in Ephesus, we'll see, Ephesus is the first church. Um, let's just read this one all the way through, and I'll comment very quickly on it. We won't have time to read all seven of them, but I want to encourage you to read them on your own. And look at this, um, this standard structure. Does someone want to start us out and read this? Who can see it? If you can, if you can see it. I know it's hard. Sorry. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Some beautiful images in there, right? Images of assurance. Remember, these are word pictures. Jesus has been seen to be walking among the seven lampstands that represent the seven churches. Um, And he, with Ephesus, the church was strong in Ephesus. Paul had been there for two years teaching. We know that Timothy pastored there. John himself pastored there. And Jesus is saying directly to them, you've done well. You work hard. You've endured patiently. And you have a pure doctrine. You cannot bear impure morality. You um, can sense truth and falsehood and you discern about it. Um, But this is one of those sobering accusations throughout here. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. How beautiful, how um, hard to hear. I've heard this at different times during my walk and thought, yeah, my passion has grown cold. I've abandoned my first love, that first blush of faith when everything is joyful, when um, reading my Bible comes so easily and I want to read five chapters a day if I can, or um, when I can't get enough of time spent with God in community, in the body of Christ, and on my own. And when it cools, There is this danger. There's this danger that we as Christians would no longer be a church. Without love, a church ceases to be a church. And that's um, then this threat, this this warning. Unless you repent, I will take your lampstand. You will no longer be a church, in a sense. What a hard word to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ. so their call is to repent, even though they're wise, even though they're a well-established church. Smyrna is another church that um, was little and tiny, and um, the church was in the midst of great tribulation. And so Jesus doesn't even rebuke them. Does someone want to read this one real quick? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hmm. The attribute of Jesus that he highlights and underlines is the fact that he is the one from the beginning who also has the final say, the one who died and rose from the dead, because they are facing death. Um, They aren't even tempted to compromise their faith. They're just trying to hold on. He says, I know you've already experienced tribulation and that you are materially poor, but in the Lord you are rich. 
I know that there are those of the Jewish faith who are going to persecute you and have been persecuting. And he's saying, don't be afraid. You will continue to suffer. But when he says 10 days, it's not a literal 10 days. um, But what the Lord Jesus is saying is that it is there will be an end to it. It's set out for a marked period of time. And so in the midst of whatever suffering they will endure, remember, there will be an end to it. And the Lord Jesus will bring it to an end. Um, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This was the Stephanos, the crown of the victor of the games, the one who is victorious. And that victory comes in Jesus. And um, the, the gift given to these ones, these Christians who overcome, is this promise that the second death, um, that death after the final judgment, will not hurt them. And we see later in Revelation that all will die once, and then there is either eternal life or the second death. And these will be free. Christians will be free from the second death through faith in Christ. I'm not going to have time, unfortunately, to go through all seven, um, but they are beautiful, in this, and they're hard to hear. I'd encourage you to read them. My, um, I'm going to stop at the very last one because I feel like this is very often the American church. Didn't that Smyrnian church, couldn't that be Egypt or um, the Iraqi Christians, right? Um, reading about Laodicea, I feel like this could be the American church. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. A hard word for this church that was half-hearted, that again had lost their original piety, that had lost their zeal. Sometimes outright denial is better than phony piety. They thought they were rich, well-clothed, that they could see. And Jesus is saying, no, you're deceived. You're deceived about yourselves. You don't get the truth about yourselves. You need me more than you think. You've become too arrogant and too self-reliant, so much so that you don't rely on me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls them to repent. And in his call to repentance, though, there's actually such grace and tenderness. He reminds them that all throughout Scripture, the one who is disciplined by the Lord is the one whom he loves. That Jesus is saying this to this church because he loves them because he wants them to be zealous, to be on fire again for him. So in the midst of all of this, we hear this refrain again and again. Um, There's Jesus at the door knocking. Again and again, this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we hear these seven, and this word through Revelation to the seven churches there, it's really to all the churches throughout time and space. It's to us today. In the midst of potential suffering, in the midst of potential compromise and temptation to compromise, what do we do? What is our recourse? Well, we um, fall back upon prayer and upon reliance upon God's grace because those are the the things 
um, that can give us the victory in him. Um, through saying, I'm weak. I need you, Lord Jesus Christ. I trust in your death on my behalf. And today, I need you also just to get through the day. I need you also to be able to not compromise with the world around me. Um, so in closing, I just want to read this quote from... Um, from Alfred Stanway, who was the first um, the first dean of the seminary that I attended in Pittsburgh, um, and this is what he said at the founding of the seminary in 1976. And he's saying this to the first class of students, and my my parents were among the first class of students, so they got to hear him say this in person, and it speaks to me. It brings me hope in the midst of the judgment that I feel in hearing these. Um, seven about these seven churches, Jesus' words, these seven churches. So this is what Alfred Stanway said. If other people knew you like God knows you, all your faults and all your thoughts, all your sins, all the things in your heart that have been in there, all the wrong thoughts that you've ever had, would they trust you with the kind of work that God trusts you with? Here is the supreme confidence that God has in his own grace. He'll take the likes of you and me and give you the privilege of being his servant. He's got to take people like you and me. He has no others. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for that daring confidence in your grace that you call us to and that you called those churches to so long ago. That confidence in you that gives us the ability beyond ourselves to persevere in the midst of suffering and temptation. And so we ask that for those of us today who might be struggling with either or both of these, either the, um, the temptation to fall in line with the world and to um, betray the truth of what we know in you, or um, the temptation to cave under suffering and to give up. Lord, in the midst of those two, um, two things that would compete that would draw us from you, Lord? Would you be above them? Would you work even through those hardships to draw us ever closer to you? Would you give us the ability to surrender our own abilities and to rely upon your grace? In Jesus' name, amen.